0: When episodes are considered for best TNG episode, there's usually a list of suspects that tend to come up often. Um, We've got Best of Both Worlds, part one, if they care care to clarify. (laughs) We've got uh, Darmok, that's the one that comes up all the time. Uh, Inner Light, Inner Light comes up all the time. This episode is usually brought up in that same kind of category. All Good Things is usually on that list, too. And occasionally, A Measure of a Man tends to be brought up. That's usually, like, the gamut, right, of the best episodes. I have to admit, upon repeat viewing, the episode is still really, really good, but I think it's actually slipped a little bit in my mind. Now, that's funny to me, because if you asked me you know, little over an hour ago, what my favorite TNG episode is, I would say this one. But upon, you know, going through with rumination analysis mode on, it's just interesting to think about. I'll go ahead and explain one of the reasons, because there's really only one reason why I think it dips a little bit. Everything else is just gold, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The first thing is, they try to call back to the whole Samaritan snare thing. That makes sense. That was just begging for some kind of continuation, and I pointed that out during my rumination on Samaritan Snare. You know, the whole, he, he, him, the best part of that episode, the only good part of that episode, was him and Wesley, which just worked really well somehow. And funnily enough, it was just two people talking. Huh. Now, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and mention this now. One of the things that I've said a lot is that if you just get two actors who really play off each other really well... Just just have great chemistry. You put them in a room and you have them act off of each other. And just good stuff happens. I've commented on this recently with regards to uh, Captain Marvel. Which I don't remember when that rumination is going live. I think it's after this one. And I've commented on that with regards to Babylon 5. You know, Jakar and Londo. There are several examples of this. But this episode is mostly Q. That is to say, John Delancey acting off of Picard. Uh, That is to say Patrick Stewart. And the two really do just gel really, really well. There's amazing chemistry between the two of them. And they pretty much are the reason why this episode stands out so much. is because of how well they manage to bounce off of each other. What's funny, though... This episode was originally more than just the one mistake, or two, if you want to call it that. Uh, Instead, it was supposed to be a whole Christmas Carol kind of a thing, covering multiple periods of Picard's past. That was torpedoed by Michael Piller, who said the whole idea was pointless. This is amusing, because Piller has also gone on record saying that this episode is pointless, and he doesn't really like it all that much. Now, what's interesting about this is that his point was valid. His point was, when any show, because Pillar's not exactly new when it comes to television productions, any show that gets into its later seasons tends to do the It's a Wonderful Life episode. Let's look at your past and see your regrets and show how you shouldn't regret them, right? I mean, that's that's, that's It's a Wonderful Life, right? It's a fairly classic tr- cliche. However, I think there's two problems with Pillar bringing this up as an issue here. Problem number one, um, th- this was in the 80s and 90s at this point. No matter what you're doing, it's a cliche. you you, you got to just kind of accept that at some point or another and just try to do the best job you can with it. Problem number two is the fact that this doesn't actually feel like it's a wonderful life. Not really. There's a very specific flavor to it. And I know that because I'm betting right now. I, I will, hang on. I will bet this carrot. Okay? I'm going to leave it here for the months necessary I'm not gonna do that I I bet you that there will be people in the comment section who disagree with me on my interpretation of this episode and that's awesome I've heard so many different interpretations of this episode over the years and I know this sounds strange but I think that's a good thing in this case not because it's so vague because it was badly designed but because it is so well designed that there's so much you can infer from it and there's a distant a distinction between those two things I'm really stuttering today I apologize they also, this is actually kind of funny in its own right. This is written by uh, Ronald D. Moore. His first Q episode, not his last. And, of course, this was also directed by Les Landau. And the two of them do manage to help the performance a lot. But uh, this is also the first time we've ever seen Ossicans, by the way. We've heard them referenced several times. Just thought I'd point that out. Anyways. <clears throat> but the thing that's interesting about this episode is, in real-life perspective, the week prior Q-Less had came, come out. That's the one DS9Q episode. Just interesting to think about, especially since he flat-out mentions he's going to visit Picard in that episode. I don't know if that was on purpose. In fact, I bet money that it wasn't, but it's just interesting to think about in hindsight. Anyways, so so we start off with the hook. Picard dies and then ends up in this big white place, and there's Q. That's the hook. You don't really need anything else. That's awesome. I've talked about this kind of hook before. This is the kind of cold open that only really works if you already have investment in the story. If you already know who these characters are. There's, because if you're a brand new person to the show, you're like, okay, so he's he's dead and he's meeting God. But if you know the show, then you're like, oh my God, he's dead and he's meeting Q. Completely different connotations. And I do think you should do that, especially when you're at the sixth season of a show, but that's just me. So then Picard starts to see different bits and pieces and... Uh, there's a really nice bit where he sees his father, who is very disappointed and you. still finds ways to disappoint me, Jean-Luc. says a lot for Picard's father, or at least what Picard thinks of his father, and would also explain Robert very well, if I might be so bold. Then, a lot of voices start voicing over all the people who died because of your actions. Now, Picard says he has no regrets. Obviously, that is a lie, as the episode itself shows. But it also says something about his command capacity, that he doesn't second-guess himself per se. What I mean by that is, you give the order, and you have to do so with a degree of confidence. You have to. You are the captain. That is your job. If you say, well, um, maybe you could do such and such, that's that's not going to work out. (laughs) Especially in a combat or a crisis situation. So you need to give the order, and you need to be firm. Afterwards, in the privacy of your own room, then you could start doubting yourself. Now you're probably saying, well then why doesn't Picard doubt himself here? Because there's a wonderfully subtle thing I never noticed before that actually does elevate the episode for me. Picard st- starts out his usual approach to Q. He is an enemy. Like, he has that mindset. This is an antagonist that I have to defeat, right? By about the midpoint of the episode, roughly, Picard stops treating him that way. Like, he starts, it, it's, just, it's a slow shift, but by about the halfway point, he starts taking him seriously. And by the end point, he's fully embraced the thing. He even admits that he owes Q for all of this. So, of course, to the enemy, still in the crisis situation, you're still adamant, right? By the way, in case I forget to mention it later, you can actually tell the exact moment in which he starts treating Q more sincerely. This is bloody subtle, and I, I want to credit Landau with this, but I don't know who actually decided this. So, after he sleeps with Marta, which is a horrible mistake, I mean, she's very attractive, but that no. Um, he turns over, and Q's there in the bed, so he immediately does this. Pulls the covers up over himself, right? And as they're talking, Picard slowly relaxes, his tone changes ever so slightly, and he actually lowers the blanket as he finishes talking to Q. And from that point onward, he is being sincere, You know, talking to Q as if he's a friend, even. And it's the moment he lowers the blanket and stops defending himself, lowering his guard, literally. Very nice touch. Anyways, a lot of little stuff like that in this episode. So, then of course, there's this great bit where Q says, this isn't for me, this is for you. And is that a regret, I hear? He sounds less evil than I do. Um... (laughs) Apparently, they were actually having so many issues with the filming of that scene that they came across as uh, bland, in the words of both Delancey and Stewart. Which I point out because it's interesting because it actually ended up working really well. The subdued cue is, I've talked about this before, is far more interesting than the completely zany over the top cue. This goes back to Cue Who. Way back when Cue was supposed to be zany over the top and instead was just, uh, oh, please which was incredibly more terrifying and threatening than you will never remember," in my opinion. And I happen to like Subdued Q. It's a good time to mention, by the way, that this is yet another take on the presentation of Q. Although, it was inspired by the Q that was in Q Who, and in many ways is the same one as there. Q Who... Uh, tapestry, I almost wanted to say Inner Light. I always get the names confused, because of the light, you know. Anyways, Q Who... Tapestry and All Good Things are all arguably the same presentation of Q. And my personal favorite, I might add. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, he says, hey, and there's young Picard who has hair! Now, I know what you're thinking. Laura, why are you bringing this up? Because in Nemesis, we see a shot of young Picard. And it's a picture of... Oh, God, I can't think of his name. The actor. He recently played Venom. He's actually a good actor, and I I, I couldn't think of his name. You, oh my god. Hang on one one moment. This is gonna bother me, and I don't want fifty comments saying it's such and such. Because I because that's exactly what you're gonna do. Tom Hardy. Okay. <clears throat> Egon. Tom Hardy, young, shaved completely bald. But he's he's got full thing of hair and this is actually not the first time they've portrayed him with a full thing of hair, too. Look, I'll take any excuse I can get to remove Nemesis from continuity, okay? <laughs> I started that fight. I was young and cocky. Huh. Yeah. Um, so this is when they start pulling the quantum leap thing. Now, this is amusing to me, by the way. So they said they wanted to bring Q back for around this point in time. The original pitch was for the previous episode. Face of the Enemy, that was actually supposed to be the crew on a Romulan ship. That was one of the original premises of that episode. I didn't talk about it there, because it's actually more relevant here, because it was a Q episode. And the whole intent was they were going to do the quantum leap thing. In other words, we would still see the actors, but everyone else would see the person they see, right? Now, the reason that was torpedoed was because they didn't want to do the quantum leap thing. So naturally, the very next episode does the quantum leap thing. I'm starting to suspect that the people in charge of Star Trek were just making it up as they go. Call me a weirdo. There's no judgment in that sentence, by the way. I know full well how weird it is to be doing something professionally for a long period of time. And then all of a sudden, you're like, well, why don't I just do it this way? This is so much better. Why did I never think of this before? I bet a lot of you sympathize with that one, too. You don't have to admit it. So Q demands Picard change. Now, this is funny. So first, he asks, is there anything different, you know, is there anything altered? Then Q demands, and then he provokes, if you manage to change anything, which I doubt. And then finally he threatens him, if you fail, you'll be with me for all eternity. He basically layers the deck, stacking it over and over and over to try and force Picard, verbally, to go ahead and try to change history. This leads to an interesting concept. Now, this gets a little bit into the interpretation of exactly how and what was happening here. But um, this is when we find out that the the nature of what's happening here is debatable. Let's just just put it that way. It could have been an extended illusion or dream sequence or it could have been literal time travel or altered time travel. And I'll get to that later. All of these are possible variations of what's happening. And as always, curious of your guys' thoughts on what you think exactly is happening here. I'll go ahead and say openly that, in my opinion, what's happening is actually a unique form of type 1 type travel, but I'll get to that later, okay? And I have a specific reason for thinking that. Regardless, it is... like a bird outside or something. Sorry. It is very debatable exactly what's happening, but there's an interesting thought process here. You ever heard of Psychohistory? It's actually a real concept, but it's also a made-up thing for the Foundation series of Isaac Asimov books, which i recommend you read at least the first one. Later ones, eh, you should read at least the first one. The point is, psychohistory predicts grand sweeping events based on mathematical patterns, to put it as simply as possible. So the idea is, to use the classic example, psychohistory would predict the Great War, But not what exactly the Great War was or how it happened or where it was happening. Just the the broader sweeps of it. National level stuff, right? It couldn't predict what kind of clothing you were wearing on September 37th, 1998. But it could predict the nature of how the geopolitical environment was shifting, right? The reason I bring this up here is because one of the interpretations I've heard is that Q is, in fact, time-traveling and does present what is effectively type 2 time-travel, which is the malleable singular timeline. So all changes are altering the timeline. That's that's type 2 time-travel. This idea is then married alongside the concept that Everything kind of still happens the way it should. I mean, now if you don't understand the significance of that, please try to think about how many specific moments Picard has been a critical factor in throughout history. Encounter at Farpoint, the encounter with the Q, uh, everything to do with the Borg, who may or may not have even been introduced to the Federation, um, the nature of the standoff with the Romulans, resolving the Klingon Civil War. There are fairly large major events that Picard has been personally involved in, right? So how does history keep going if he didn't do all those things? Now, the way this tends to be presented, again, depends on your interpretation. My personal take on it is the idea that Q, when he showed him the future part, that's pretty much full-on illusion. That's Q just giving him an insight on, shall we call it a prediction, of what would happen if he did actually decide to commit to these changes. My take on that. So in other words... What we see is Type two time travel, a straight-up illusion, and Type one time travel all within the same bit. I'll, I swear I'll explain all of this when we get to the end, but point being, the idea here that history would somehow find a way to follow the same pattern without individuals involved is actually an interesting idea. The problem is, historically speaking, it's been proven false in almost every case, and in fact, not to spoil the Foundation trilogy, but psychohistory has proven false there, too because of the individual. You can't tell me removing Picard from the equation isn't going to drastically alter the timeline, but Picard made him swear, made him promise. So if this is, in fact, a future, and he's actually in the altered present, then what we are seeing is a timeline that Q has drastically altered at multiple key interviews just to ensure that things kept going roughly the way they should. Interesting to think about. Either way... This then leads to them playing Domjot. Um, for money. I just like to point out every time a Starfleet officer actually bargains and gambles in currency. Because it, it just amuses me every time they bring up the fact that they've abandoned currency-based economics and blah, blah, blah. Anyways. <clears throat> Picard... Now, there's a nice scene. <laughs> there's a nice scene where Corey and Marta are there, and Corey's like, nah, he must have been cheating. And Picard tries to talk him out of acting on it. Now, what I love about this is Patrick Stewart plays this scene as if Picard is speaking to, like, his son, or maybe a younger officer, you know, the familial thing. He treats him as if he's his captain, because his touch has always been, well, ever since, like, season three or so, it's been the familial touch, the fatherly touch. So... You know, I'm going. You know, the the the, sho- the hand on the shoulder. It's like it's okay, son. You know, we got to do this and think about this. And he and he does it pretty well, actually. It's a good speech. It just obviously doesn't convince him at all. This leads to the. Well, I I knew we'd get there. So this is when we have to talk about Marta. Now the problem is Marta, in my opinion, her role in this episode is incorrect and a misstep. If only I could go back in time and prevent it. I mean that sincerely, though. I can see why it's there. I just don't enjoy its presence, and I think it detracts from the overall work. This is why this episode has dipped a little bit lower, in my opinion, by the way. Entirely because of the pseudo-romance subplot. Now, I get it. It's not actually a romance of the week. That's not my complaint. The whole point of it is he decides to correct a mistake and it goes really badly. It's actually a very rapid-fire form of foreshadowing for how things are going to go with regards to the Nausicaan fight, which is part of why I feel it's unnecessary. It doesn't really add anything to the theme, it's just a repetition of the theme, which is very strongly emphasized later on in the episode. It also it doesn't really add anything to her or to him as characters. It's not like we learn anything... It's not like it... it, If I could be so bold, I would also say it doesn't really connect to the main theme. Now, what the main theme of this episode is is something that's been debated, so that's up to you to agree with me, disagree with me, or tell me how stupid and awful I am and throw carrots at my face. That's up to you. Don't worry, I'll try to eat them. But I feel that if you literally just ejected it completely, the episode would be better for it and would probably go right back up to the top slot for me. As is, I'm just sitting here like, all right, come on. And the only good thing that happens during the entire sequence is the blanket bit that I already referenced with him talking to Q. And, of course, there is a nice bit where Q... Q keeps, keeps popping in, which, again, really helps the episode. So far, you've been slapped by one woman, had a drink thrown in your face by another, and alienated your two-bit friends. You're doing pretty good so far. <laughs> good job! Wink, wink. Anyways. <clears throat> so, um... He tries to stop him. He's like, you don't understand. He was reaching for a weapon. That's actually a pretty valid reason to try and stop a fight, if I'm being completely honest. But whatever. This leads to Lieutenant Junior Grade of Astrophysicists. Of Astrophysicists? Of Astrophysics Picard. Now this is interesting for many reasons. First... I do want to credit Picard that he adapts to the situation very quickly. He asks a few questions of Worf and Data, and then he says, no, I'll go see medical myself. Then when Q's there and lays it out for him, he's like, okay. So the very next thing, and I do mean the next thing he does, is he reaches out to the personnel officers, that'd be Riker and Troy, to try and see if he can do something about his career. This whole section's actually gold, in my opinion. It's a great way to turn it on its head. And again, it would only work in a show that's already been out for a while. This is the kind of episode that absolutely would not work in season one. You need establishment in order for any of this to make sense. The way Worf is dealing with... (laughs) Lieutenant Junior, great, Jesus Christ. I did a little math. Picard is 64 in this episode. Roughly. Um... I want you to imagine a 64-year-old who never goes beyond Lieutenant Junior grade in Starfleet. Oh, it's okay. I'm sure the moment the Dominion War hit, he would totally get promoted. Roll my eyes. Anywho, <clears throat> funnily enough, several books have carried forward the idea of this Picard, but I'm getting off topic. So the way he talks to both... so Data's just nonplussed about the whole thing. Worf is like, "Are you? are you okay? Q lays it out. I kept my promise. I did exactly what I said I'd do. Nothing is different except for you. You're welcome. So the way he reaches out. Now, Troy and Riker are both very sincere and diplomatic. But ultimately, both of them are just trying to explain how he is a cog in a machine. And that's useful. And it is. And it's valuable. And it is. But wanting to be more than that? No. And you'll notice that they think, well, maybe engineering, we could talk. Command? No, they just, they just completely torpedo that idea. Just, boop, not even beginning to happen. And of course, he's, he still needs to get that report to La Forge, which is also LaForge's only uh, appearance in this episode. There's a really, really great scene that follows that. In fact, I wrote down the quote. The Jean-Luc Picard you wanted to be the one who did not fight the Nausicaan. Actually, as a quick aside, I, I forgot to write it down, but I wrote it down here, The one this is who you wanted to be, someone who was less like me. He also, Picard also mentions that he is a dreary man, a tedious job. I've actually heard some people talk about that and be like, well, obviously there are still tedious jobs in Starfleet, and that's valid. There are tedious jobs in Starfleet. Voyager did a whole episode about this. Generally, the point, though, is that the people who tend to get into those are people who don't have any particular career aspirations, or people who don't mind because it gives them access to other things. In other words, it's a stepping stone, or a nice place to nestle in. I know this is getting idealized, but the idea is as long as Starfleet is doing okay, they actually are supposed to have career counselors and people in positions of... Actual competency sufficiently in order to say this is the direction your career path should go in. This also ties back into something that a commenter of mine once said, and I'm pretty sure that person doesn't even watch my stuff anymore. I don't remember their name. Please forgive me. They were talking. I mentioned how much I liked the the ambition of Harry Kim, and I liked the ambition of um, Keiko over on Deep Space Nine. And you know, there's there's always something to right reach for and strive for. What about the non-ambitious point? What about the people who don't want to do anything? Well, here you go. (laughs) Apparently, alternate Picard was not ambitious and was totally happy just sliding into this little job. It is only our Picard who finds this to be dreary and tedious because they are different people and they shouldn't be in the same job because they're different people. Forgive me for defending this point, but I've actually had long discussions about just this one sentence right there. But so, you know, Q says, you know, you wanted to be less like me. The Jean-Luc Picard you wanted to be, the one who did not fight the and had quite a different experience from the one you remember. That Picard never had a brush with death, never came face to face with his own mortality, never realized how fragile life is or how each important each moment must be. So his life never came into focus. He drifted through much of his career with no plan or agenda, going from one assignment to the next, never seizing the opportunities that presented themselves. He never led the away team on Milica III to save the ambassador. He never took charge of the Stargazer's bridge when its captain was killed, and no one ever offered him command. He learned to play it safe. And he never, ever got noticed by anyone. And he turns to leave. And Picard says, you're right, Q. You gave me a chance to change, and I took the opportunity, but I admit it now, it was a mistake. Are you asking me for something, Jean-Luc? Give me a chance to put things the way they were before. Before you died in sickbay, is that what you want? And what he says in response is, I would rather die the man I was than live the life I just saw. This brings the whole episode into focus for me. I could sort of summarize the whole episode and why it means so much to me with one simple sentence, which is actually only three words. Survival is sufficient. Anybody who's a long-time viewer of mine knows I say that sentence a lot. I say that sentence in real life because I believe it. Survival is insufficient, acceptable if temporary, but survival itself is not the goal. Life is the goal. The harsh reality is that so many of the things in our past that we regret are a necessary fragment of who we are now. Not all of them, not all of them, and this isn't true across the board, but I can name several things I've done in the past that I regret tremendously, that I feel guilty about to this day. I once stole money from my mom to buy a Transformer. And I know you're probably laughing, but that actually takes something for me to admit that, because I am deeply ashamed by that. That still hurts to this day to think about that. And as a consequence, you know, I've actually never deliberately or knowingly stolen from anyone since then. You know why? Because I did it. And I learned from it. Because that's kind of how we work. We do, we fall, we get up. Now there are exceptions to this rule, obviously. But you can kind of see the premise there, can't you? The idea of... I talk so much about the concept of in the moment... How many of you out there, again, you don't have to answer in the comments, how many of you out there have something you did in the moment that you still regret to this very day? I'll go ahead and raise my hand on that one, too. (sighs) Yeah. I, uh, I imagine I'm not alone in regretting a lot of my past. I would like to think that I have become a better person as a consequence of it, but I can't really fairly judge that. But that's the point, isn't it? The point of the episode, at least. The idea that in order to live, we have to take bad in addendum to good. That if you want to have no bad, then you have no good. This is a very common thread in fiction as well as in real life. You can't have a nightmare if you never dream. Right? To me, this is the core point of the episode. This is, of course, only my interpretation thereof, which is why I leave the, the floor open, so to speak, to any of you who want to share your interpretations, or how you feel this goes. And I would love to hear that, because this is an episode I've talked about for you know, decades at this point in time. I talked about this episode, no joke, in the school playground, uh, just, just hanging out with my friends after the episode came out we have been doing that for a couple of years at this point in time, but still, we talked about this one a lot. I've talked about this one in the office space, talked about this one at college, I've talked about this one online, in message boards, on AOL chats, IRC, I don't remember that. Email groups, I, that's not what they were called. Mail groups, something like that. I, it's been a while. So I'd love to talk about this one again. As a further addendum, though, I want to share my own theory on exactly what happens, which as ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So here's what I think happened. In the past, Jean-Luc Picard, our Jean-Luc Picard, goes through the events of the final fight, ends up getting stabbed, and laughs about it. He is then yanked, his consciousness, if you will, is yanked from then into the present where he then is resuscitated on the, 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 the table. You'll notice, and this is a small and subtle touch, Crusher's voice is legitimately surprised when she says, oh, he's, he's getting better, right? So I don't think she did that. I think he did that. Then, you're probably... So then time happens, and then we get to the points of the episode where he gets stabbed. What I think happens then is that Q kind of, let's say, pulls Picard out of time for a bit. So they're not really part of the linear progression of time during the events of most of the episode. He then shoves Picard back into the past and allows him the chance to change things, which I already covered, you know, because that already happened. Type 1, time 2. You see where I'm going with this. But then, as a consequence of that, he allows Picard to basically see what the consequences of that action would be, which, as I mentioned, I think is more of like, like an illusion rather than an actual branching or altered timeline. This then leads to him being shoved right back into the moment where he is stabbed and he laughs. I've thought this for a long time, and honestly, rewatching this episode has really concluded my, my thoughts on the matter. I think the reason Picard laughed, which remember happened before this episode even came into being, was because that was this episode's Picard. Type 1 time travel. It already happened because it's going to happen the way it already happened. In other words, there's no literal alteration to the timeline. He laughed because of the fact that he had just set his life on his correct course, and he would die as the man he was, rather than survive as the man he was going to be. I really like this episode. Like I said, the Marta thing is the only thing that pushes it down a little bit. But other than that, I really think this still deserves to be considered in the top five whatever list. We'll probably do something at the end of TNG. I'll have to come up with something. We'll figure it out. Either way, I hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.